I have no idea where the story came from, but it became sort of a standard part of our dinner table repertoire when our girls were growing up. It's the story of a country boy who was invited to a very formal banquet. I mean, think dinner at Downton Abbey, you know. And uh, he got there, he was doing okay, until he poked his fork into his mashed potatoes, lifted them to his mouth without realizing that they were scalding hot. Instinctively, he spat the whole mushy wad back out onto his plate. All of the well-dressed, sophisticated people around the table stared at him with uh, embarrassed surprise. He looked up from the plate and said, you know, some fools would have swallowed that. <laughs> and that's precisely how the people in Corinth felt when Paul came to them later in the letter saying, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. Crucified. It was enough to make all of those sophisticated, well-educated people in Corinth say, some fools would swallow that. Some simpletons might believe it, but it sounds like foolishness to us. In fact, Paul uses that word, foolishness, six times in these two paragraphs that we read this morning. In fact, the word he used is the Greek root for the word that comes down to us as moron. To them, this this proclamation of the cross was moronic. The idea of a crucified Savior was an oxymoron, a contradiction in terms. And they had good reason to feel that way. Archaeologists tell us that the first drawing of Jesus on the cross was carved into a plaster wall on the Palatine Hill in Rome, about 200. Here, here it is. Uh, imagine, think graffiti without the spray paint, okay? Uh, it's a little difficult to see, so here's the pencil drawing of what was carved in the wall. On the left side is a man raising a hand in, in loyalty, worship, honor, looking toward a figure nailed to a Roman cross, and the figure on the cross has the body of a human being and the head of a donkey. The Greek inscription on the bottom reads, Alex Amenos worships his God. He worships the ass on the cross. It was crude mockery of anyone who would worship a condemned criminal who was nailed to a Roman cross. It was crass mockery of the very idea of any God who had allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. Everybody knew what crucifixion was in those days. Crucifixion was the Roman punishment reserved 
for rebels who disrupted the law and order of the Pax Romana. Crucifixion was reserved for terrorists who disturbed the peace of the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was for revolutionaries who undermined the social, cultural, political, religious assumptions of the Roman Empire. And crucifixion was the public persecution of those early Christians who dared to say that they would not pledge allegiance to Caesar because they had pledged allegiance to Jesus Christ. No wonder, no wonder Paul says this, this message of the cross is foolishness to the world. No wonder the response of the people in Corinth was something like, you know, some fools might have swallowed that. Paul describes two kinds of responses out there, Corinth. He says, on one hand, there are the religious people, the spiritually searching people. He said, they look for signs and miracles. They want some mystical, magical experience that will be the irrefutable evidence of God's power. And I'd submit to you that there are now, as there were in Corinth then, sincere, spiritually searching folks who look for some sign, some miracle. And there are now, as there were then, more than enough spiritual charlatans and hucksters who will promise the healing of every disease, the solving of every problem, the filling of every bank account. All you have to do is believe and pray and, oh, yes, send in a donation along the way. Paul said there are others. There, there are the sophisticated, well-educated, who search for what he called wisdom. Not wisdom like the wisdom of the Old Testament, but he refers to, uh, specifically, to, to those Greek debaters, the silver-tongued orators, who were able to turn every argument so that it perfectly pleased whatever the audience desired. And there are now, as there were then in Corinth, plenty of sincere folks who search for some sort of theological justification of the long-held assumptions upon which they live. Someone who will reinforce their carefully protected cultural and religious biases and prejudice. And there are now, as there were then, plenty of preachers and politicians and promoters who will give the audience exactly what they want with no, no threat of any word that might disturb their comfortable assumptions. Paul said, some seek signs and miracles. Some search for wisdom. Then Paul says, but... But, Paul uses that word a lot in his letters, but. My, uh, my brother always says, 
that nothing matters if it comes before the word but. You know what I mean? Uh, the movie was okay, but. Uh, that's a nice dress, but. Uh, he's a good guy, but. I'm not a racist, but. Nothing matters if it comes before the word but. And so Paul announces the great contradiction that comes in the gospel when he says, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jew and, Gen and Greek, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Right there in the middle of Corinth, one of the most secular cities of the age, right in the center of Corinth, he plants the cross as the great dividing line in human life and experience. It is foolishness, he says, to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved. This, this word of the cross, this foolish sign of God's incarnate love in Jesus, this extravagant gift of God's grace, this, this becomes the power of God. You might as well face it. <clears throat> Most of what Jesus said sounds absolutely foolish to the world. I mean, when Jesus describes the kingdom of God, the way God intends for this world to be, and says things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those, those are not the kind of folks who get blessed in this world. Though, those are the kind of people who end up either on the short end of the stick or nailed to it. It's foolishness. The cross, Paul says, looks like weakness to all of us who think we can somehow save ourselves and change this world by our own power and strength and influence. It looks like weakness, which is exact, of course, exactly what the Good Friday crowd said when they mocked Jesus saying, look at him up there. He he was going to save others. He can't even save himself. 
the cross looked by all the world's standards like weakness. And yet, for those who acknowledge their weakness, who acknowledge just how desperately they need the undeserved, unearned grace and forgiveness of God, the cross becomes the sign of God's power to save. It looks like foolishness to the world, Paul said. But the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of the world. And the weakness of God is stronger than any of the world's strength. I mean, another way to say it would be that the word of the cross looks downright moronic to anyone who has adjusted their life and their assumptions to the assumptions of the culture and the world in which we live. It only looks like power to those who are maladjusted to some of the assumptions of the world around us. Which reminded me of a, um, of a riff that Martin Luther King Jr. used in many of his speeches, uh, a riff in which he talked about what it means to be maladjusted. There, there's a fragment of a video left of one of those speeches, this one at the University of Michigan. Uh, take a listen to what it says. Modern psychology has a word that is probably used more than any other word in psychology. It is the word maladjusted. It is the ringing cry of modern child psychology, maladjusted. Now, of course, we all want to live the well-adjusted life in order to avoid neurotic and schizophrenic personalities. But as I move toward my conclusion, I would like to say to you today, in a very honest manner, that there are some things in our society and some things in our world for which I'm proud to be maladjusted. And I call upon all men of goodwill to be maladjusted to these things until the good society is realized. I must honestly say to you that I never intend to adjust myself through racial segregation and discrimination. I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few and leave millions of God's children smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society. That's where the tape ends, but here's how, how his words went on. I never did intend to adjust myself to the madness of militarism and the self-defeating effects of physical violence. And then uh, Dr. King would all, started to preach, which was, after all, what he was. He would go on to say, so let us be as maladjusted as Amos, who in the midst of the injustices of his day could cry out in words that echo across the centuries, let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. Let us be as maladjusted as Jesus, who could look into the eyes of men and women in his generation and cry out, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, pray for them that despitefully use you. And then, then he would end up like a 
preacher giving an altar call with the invitation, I call upon all people of goodwill to be maladjusted because it may well be that the salvation of our world lies in the hands of the maladjusted. If, if the cross represents God's way of saving this world, of transforming our lives, of changing us into something like the kingdom of God, then the salvation of the world rests in the hands of the mal-adjusted. If, if this is the way God works, then this is the way God calls us to work. Every now and then you catch a glimpse of it in real human flesh and, and even the secular world sort of stands back in amazement at what they're seeing. Uh, it will be a surprise to some of you and consolation to others. I've never read an issue of Rolling Stone magazine. Just, there it is, never been there. But I looked up this one. For the first time, the Pope showed up on the front cover of Rolling Stone. This created a lot of buzz around the country. And listen, listen to a few lines of what the editors of Rolling Stone said about the Pope. His recognizable humanity comes off as positively revolutionary. It's a great line. His recognizable humanity comes off as positively revolutionary. By eschewing the papal palace for a modest two-room apartment, by publicly scolding church leaders for being obsessed with divisive social issues, and by devoting much of his first <coughs> major written teaching to a scathing critique of unchecked free market capitalism, the Pope revealed his own obsession to be more in line with his boss's son. His own obsession to be more in line with his boss's son. If, if the cross is the way by which God is at work to change, to heal, to redeem, to transform this world, then the way of the cross is the way in which Jesus calls every one of his disciples to be about that work as well. And that, that may be the most shocking word of all. But it's right there at the conclusion of the passage we read today. Hear it again. Consider your own call, you, you, brothers, sisters. Consider your, your own call. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong.
God chose what is low and to despise in the world things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. In order that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so the question for each of us, brothers and sisters, may just be, how foolish are you willing to be? Let's pray together. I invite you to uh, join me in the uh, traditional words attributed to St. Francis as a way of leading us in prayer and preparing us to be disciples of this divine foolishness in the world. The words will appear on the screen. Let's pray together. Make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. Where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. And so we enter into this life of foolish discipleship by the extravagant commitment of our lives in the commitment of our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, our witness, and in the giving of God's tithes and our gifts and offerings.